0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We are excited to announce that there is a way for people who do not have smartphones or who prefer to use their computers to listen to the Return to Order Moment. All you need to do is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org. When you get there, You will see the Return to Order logo at the top of the page. Immediately under that is a dark yellow bar with eight buttons. The second from the right is Podcast. Simply click on that word and you will go directly to our podcast page. The newest episode will be the first on the list. Click the little arrowhead under the title, Sit Back and Listen. We publish a new podcast every week at midnight when Tuesday becomes Wednesday. So, if you go to the website every week, it is easy to hear our latest episode.
1: So now we thank you for listening to our current episode. Modernist revolutionaries resist recent setbacks with waves of panic and nonsense. Ever since the early 60s, the left has largely had its own way when it comes to public policy. The ball got rolling with the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren. It accelerated with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and the sexual revolution and the anti-Vietnam War protests took these issues to the streets. The Reagan administration stalled this so-called progress, but did little to roll it back. During the presidencies of Bill Clinton and the elder and younger George Bushes, the liberals scored minor victories, but they were really just treading water. And then the dam broke as Barack Obama took a more radical direction. But now the liberals have to deal with real defeat when it appeared that they were about to win big. They don't know how to handle it and resort to panic. The most obvious liberal defeat is in the realm of abortion. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses it in his essay, Post-Roe Panic Grips Abortion Industry's Lapdogs in the Press.
0: Within the pro-life movement, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was greeted with guarded optimism. The pro-abortion folks, however, know that the decision deals a crippling blow to their side. One reaction is fear, like this comment from Russ Feingold of the American Constitution Society. Quote, I am outraged, scared, and heartbroken, as I know you are too. Our pain, anger, and fear are valid and appropriate. Never before has the Supreme Court taken away a fundamental right. These are dark days. Please take care of yourself and your loved ones. After 50 years of frustration, pro-lifers are used to legal setbacks and the resolution to fight another day. Now pro-abortionists are tasting bitter defeat that is strange to them. Many so-called scholars lament the Dobbs decision and cannot believe that they have been bested. Dr. Deidre M. Condit, a political scientist at Virginia Commonwealth University, criticized the Supreme Court for its willingness to oppress women. Quote, The court overtly ignores the fact that its decision immediately wrought enormous drama to women's lives all across the country. Women in states with trigger laws are suddenly rendered politically powerless to take care of their own health. To the liberal academic mind, the idea that the Dobbs decision is part of a search for justice is inconceivable. The decision flies in the face of progressive attitudes about the inevitability of history. David H. Gans, Alternet's legal expert who leads the human rights, civil rights, and citizenship program at the Constitutional Accountability Center said, quote, This is a radical court dominated by conservatives who treat the past practices of state legislatures as determinative of the Constitution's meaning, warping the broadly worded language that was meant to enshrine fundamental principles of liberty and equality in our national charter. This is a court that insists it is following history and tradition where they lead, while cherry-picking the history it cares about to reach conservative results. Unquote. At Salon, Jamie Arona Krems and Marty Hazelton argue that abortion threatens the well-being of traditional, or those they call, sexually restricted women. Quote, Consider that sexually restricted women often get married young and have children early in life. These choices tend to leave women more economically dependent on husbands. Other women's sexual openness can destroy these women's lives and livelihoods by breaking up the relationships they depend on. So sexually restricted women benefit from impeding other people's sexual freedoms." Unquote. Probably by accident, they are onto something. Today's overly sexualized society harms families by undermining marriages. Unfortunately, These writers see such conflict as liberating. The left uses the Dobbs decision to continue the sexualization of children. Fox News drew attention to a recent New York Times op-ed. Quote, New York Times guest essayists Dr. Eva Goldfarb and Dr. Lisa Lieberman argued Wednesday that sex education is more vital following the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade reversal that transpired last month Casting blame on religious right political groups for attempting to undermine not only abortion, but accurate sex education in schools as well. Lacking any sense that unbridled sexual license leads to moral, emotional, and physical damage, these so called doctors see those who want to protect children's innocence as either idiotic, evil, or both. They think traditionalists wish to keep children ignorant and repressed. In an article for NJ.com showing her support for gender ideology, Dr. Goldfarb said educators need to inform children as young as five. Quote, The CDC estimates that one in four women have an abortion in their lifetimes. Children should know that they or someone they know and love may want or need an abortion someday. And it is up to us as adults to give them the tools they need to understand the fight around reproductive rights. Here is a powerful motivator, especially in an atmosphere of change. Many pro abortion writers focus on dark scenarios that never happened, but might happen. United Press International described the concerns of Gretchen E. Eli, a social work professor at the University of Tennessee. She is concerned about women who live in states that forbid abortion. Quote, the cost of getting an abortion is rising for many of these patients, as people may need to travel further to one of the 28 states or to Washington, where abortion, at least for now, remains legal. Unquote. Slate promises a series titled, Dispatches from an Abortion Island. The first installment quotes an official of the Hope Clinic for Women in Granite City, Illinois, Amy Red Greiner. Quote, Just this morning, someone reached out and said, I'm afraid. Am I going to get arrested if I come to Illinois? I know it's legal there, but it's not legal in my state. So will I get arrested when I come back? Unquote. Red knows that this woman is in no danger of arrest. But rather than say it, she leaves the narrative dangling as if to say that the fear is all too real. Meanwhile, Jessica Glenza at The Guardian relates the concerns of Elizabeth Nash of the Guttmacher Institute. Quote, We're looking at probably about 15 million women living in a state with an abortion ban right now. That number we expect to increase because more states are looking to ban abortion. And we could see as much as half of the country without abortion access very soon, Some pro-abortionists assert that abortion is the hardest decision a woman can make. No one, they say, does it for convenience. The following three anecdotes refute that assertion. For example, television actress and producer Sophia Bush is delighted that her husband helped his then-girlfriend procure an abortion. She wrote in Glamour magazine, quote, I type this as I look across the kitchen at my husband. A man with whom I am deeply in love, who might never have come into my life, nor me into his, had it not been for an abortion. Not my experience, I have never had an abortion, but his. An abortion that he and a former partner had is what got us here, unquote. A photo that accompanies the article shows the couple smiling broadly. Miss Bush's narrative concludes with the observation that the girlfriend's abortion contributed to lives that are, quote, bigger, brighter, more loving, unquote. In his July 24th column for CNN, John Wood discussed a former girlfriend's decision to abort the child they had conceived. He was relieved when the girlfriend called to say that she had decided to procure an abortion. Mr. Wood then provided a few details about his remarkable life. Quote, I have traveled America, found fulfillment in deeply meaningful work, and have raised three children with a beautiful wife who is the woman of my dreams. Unquote. Mr. Wood then added a final insult to the memory of his never-born child. Quote, Our story is a hopeful argument for choice. Rebecca White had an abortion using the abortifacient Plan B. Openly promiscuous, she prefers the modernist term sexually active. She told the Daily Beast that she fears for coming generations. In light of the Dobbs decision, Miss White fears that today's young women will not be able to make the same decisions she made. Quote, Today, I realize the privilege that comes with not really knowing how many different men I've slept with. I lived during a time when I was lucky enough to be able to separate my sex life from the rest of me. I was not weighed down by fears of pregnancy, Unquote. according to CNN. The situation is so dire that American women consider going to Mexico for so-called reproductive health care. Sandra Cardona, a Mexican abortion activist and abortion clinic worker, Veronica Cruz are the twin foci of a CNN essay by Catherine Shiochet. Both Cardona and Cruz worked hard on the campaign to make abortion legal in Mexico. That goal was tragically achieved when the Mexican Supreme Court decriminalized it in 2021. They are eager to share the lessons of their campaign with abortion activists in the United States now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe. Quote, now is the time, Cruz said, for the North to learn from the South. Unquote. Vice President Kamala Harris summed up the situation nicely. Quote, Women are getting pregnant every day in America and this is a real issue. Unquote. However, the real problem is abortion, not pregnancy. Until that issue is solved, the pro-life movement knows that its work is incomplete.
1: In the current environment, leftists are grasping at straws. A typical overreaction is the mini-controversy that bubbled up in the liberal press over the use of rosaries. Mr. John Horvat ponders the leftist angst in his essay, yes, the rosary is a mighty weapon against evil. It's the solution, not the problem.
0: Daniel Paniton, a sensationalist writer in The Atlantic thinks he has just uncovered a vast, red trad Christian nationalist conspiracy centered on the rosary. The hit piece, How Extremist Gun Culture is Trying to Co-Opt the Rosary, tries to turn the august sacramental into an alt-right talisman. By guilt of association, he claims the rosary is entangled with, quote, absolutist gun culture, and conspiratorial politics, unquote. Any conservative activist praying the rosary risk being accused of weaponizing it, and thus are a danger to society. Mr. Paniton could have saved himself much time and trouble if he had just researched the rosary beyond the conspiratorial websites he trolled to put together his dramatic rant. Catholics have never hidden the fact that the rosary is a weapon in the fight against the forces of evil. For seven centuries, the rosary has been a powerful weapon against the world, flesh, and the devil. The present era is no exception to the rule. Indeed, it is needed now more than ever. St. Dominic first promoted the rosary as a means of fighting against the Albigensian heresy in the 13th century. In 1571, Pope Pius V convoked all of Christendom to pray the Rosary to overcome the Muslim feat at Lepanto. The date of the Catholic victory on October 7th was later declared the Feast of the Most Holy Rosary. When the Blessed Mother appeared to three shepherd children in Fatima, Portugal in 1917... She asked everyone to pray the rosary daily to end the fighting in Europe. Many credit the retreat of the Soviet army from Austria in 1955, after the Second World War, to the massive public rosary rallies organized all over the nation by Father Petrus Pavlasek. Wherever there is a fight against church enemies, the rosary is at the heart of the struggle. The Church has never hidden the Rosary and the militant imagery associated with being Christian in a hostile world. There is nothing wrong with adapting that imagery to modern times and warfare. It was not without reason that Blessed Pope Pius IX said, Give me an army saying the Rosary, and I will conquer the world. Unquote. With a proven track record, The Rosary is a real and effective weapon against real enemies of the Church. It strikes terror in the hearts of those who persecute the Church, including those involved in the present culture war. Thus, Mr. Paniton's attacks on the Rosary can only be explained because he sees it as a threat to the present godless culture. He cannot fail to notice that the rosary increasingly appears everywhere on the front lines of the culture war. Its incredible power has closed abortion clinics, canceled drag queen story hours, and angered satanic activists. His attack targets not alt-rightists, but faithful Catholics in the public square praying the rosary in successful obedience to Mary's Fatima request and it terrifies him. Mr. Paniton's concern about the rosary has three significant flaws. He does not understand the nature of the rosary as a prayer that unites the person to the Blessed Mother. Thus, he creates the blasphemous fiction that the rosary beads as a good luck charm are weaving themselves into an extremist fringe. The rosary by its nature, links the Catholic faithful to Our Lady, who is all-pure, all-good, and incapable of sin. Nothing about Our Lady can be against the common good. Those who say the Rosary will forever strive to do nothing contrary to God's law. To suggest that devotees to the rosary are potential alt-right terrorists is an insult to all who love and pray the rosary. His second problem is his desire to isolate the rosary to render it harmless. While he accuses conservatives of weaponizing the rosary, he wants to ghettoize it. He deems the rosary acceptable, as long as it stays inside the churches and out of the public square. The rosary must be reduced to a security blanket to bolster weak souls afflicted with anxieties. It must be kept in the hands of those he deems holy and therefore ineffective. The mixture of Catholic activism and the rosary cannot be allowed. Finally, Mr. Paniton's vision of the rosary wants to limit its use to vague and ambiguous evils. Rosary devotees must keep their fights subjective and internal. Target a folkloric Satan that exists only in the imaginations of the nervous Catholics and not in the real world. The minute the evil is identified with a satanic black mass at Harvard University or Oklahoma City Hall, the LGBTQ agenda or imaginary reproductive rights, and the writer sounds the alarm. The Rosary then favors dangerous, so-called homophobic positions. It represents a, quote, "militarism that also glorifies a warrior mentality and notions of manliness and male strength." Unquote. The wrong-headed Canadian writer shows his true extremist colors by defending all the leftist positions. When the other side says to stop using the rosary, that is a sure sign that it is having an immense impact on the principalities and powers that dominate the modern world. See Ephesians 6, verse 12. It is time to press the attack. The rosary is a most powerful weapon. Catholics need to use it proudly, publicly, and fervently.
1: As Mr. Horvath's essay about the rosary shows us, the leftist panic seizes on any symbol of tradition and order. In Europe, an absurd reaction focuses on the necktie. Mr. Gary Isbell explores this unfortunate trend in his essay, Why Are France and Spain All in Knots Over the Necktie?
0: The simple ribbon of cloth we call the necktie has come under brutal assault in the Spanish Parliament by Socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez under the ridiculous guise of saving energy. At a news conference, he said, quote, I'd like you all to note that I'm not wearing a tie. That means we can all save from an energy point of view, unquote. The socialist then requested that all public officials, and also those in the private sector, stop wearing neckties to implement the presumed energy-saving measures that are so important to Spain. Such measures lead us to ask if the jacket is next in line. It also suggests that the Spanish official has an ulterior motive— The same debate curiously erupted in the French Parliament between conservative deputies and the far-left France Unbowed, LFI, party. What triggered the debate was the misbehavior of some LFI younger members who appear almost always tireless and casually dressed. The tireless MPs provoked conservative Republican MP Eric Ciotti to send a letter to the Parliament Speaker asking him to enforce the rule mandating that formal dress be worn in Parliament. He noted that formal dress is the, quote, mark of respect due to our institutions and compatriots, unquote. Indeed, those who do not respect themselves will treat others in a like manner. Conservative Deputy Renaud Mousselier added to the complaint by noting that the disruptive left-wing MPs are dirty and scream everywhere they go. This display, lacking personal respect and dignity, is undoubtedly reflected in their egalitarian dress. The Liberal LFI Party responded with its own letter, saying that clothing does not make a deputy. It further stated that the tie does not represent dressing smartly, but implies adhesion to a particular social group. Indeed, while the habit does not make the monk, it indicates that he does identify with the profession's ideals and will tend to act consistently. For this reason, the French Parliament and other legislative bodies insist that their MPs dress appropriately, which has always been taken to mean a business suit and tie. Liberal MPs logically seek to adopt a more modern implementation of the dress code. However, the debate over the tie is not about energy saving, but what the tie symbolizes. The underlying problems socialist Prime Minister Sanchez and the French liberal LFI deputies have go beyond that simple piece of cloth we call a necktie understanding the origin of the necktie, also referred to as a cravat, will shed some light on the subject. The cravat was first noticed being worn by Croatian mercenaries by the French circa 1630. Enlisted men wore knotted claws around their necks while officers used fine silks the french sense of honor style and elegance quickly adopted it as an addition to their military uniforms and a form of fashion in civil life upon seeing the cravat king louis the 13th was enchanted and it soon became part of the parisian court's attire born out of military dress it was not only adopted by king louis the 13th But when King Charles II returned to England after years of exile at the French court, he went back to wearing the cravat. From there, it spread to the new world. Our attire influences our behavior. Even actors are well aware of this truth and practice with certain pieces of clothing that express the part they are to play. Each piece of clothing imparts something of a mentality— and has a direct influence over our tendencies. We dress as we think, and we think as we dress. The way we dress tells a story. Someone dressing in a vulgar, sloppy fashion suggests a similar attitude toward those around us. Those who dress in immoral and revealing clothes show a disregard for modesty and the bad effects it has on others. On the contrary, on those occasions when men dress in a clean, sharp, orderly fashion, wearing pants with defined creases, well-shined shoes, and a matching tie, it suggests the person is orderly, clean, responsible, and thoughtful. Though dressing well does not determine behavior, it strongly influences our tendencies to behave well. We are social creatures. And everything about us makes a statement, especially how we dress. Our presentation includes not only clothes, but all accessories, hairstyle, fragrance, posture, body language, tone of voice, and the energy with which we move and speak. Swiss Bank UBS published a 44-page dress code, stressing the importance of dressing correctly from a study they conducted. Below are a few snippets from this report. 1. A garment is a critical form of nonverbal communication. 2. A flawless appearance can bring inner peace and a sense of security. 3. Adopting impeccable behavior extends to impeccable presentation. The liberal LFI party's criticism of the tie confirms this notion of clothing as a social statement. The left turned the issue into a manifestation of class struggle by saying the use of the tie indicates an adhesion to a particular social group. Leftists show that dress sends a message about our duties and social status. They also realize that their disheveled dress sends a message favoring their leftist agenda against established order. The insistence of the conservative French MP was also correct. Traditionally, neckties have conveyed the idea of authority, dignity, and capability. It can show respect for others and improve self-esteem. Wearing a necktie commands respect, and liberals hate this because of its noble military origins. It symbolizes tradition, honor, and order in an elegant manner. It embodies everything a leftist seeks to destroy by implementing vulgar egalitarian customs without distinctions for excellence and decorum. Eliminating the necktie has nothing to do with saving energy, and everything to do with destroying wholesome Christian traditions that aid in the practice of virtue. In effect, getting rid of the tie would destroy one more stone in the foundation upon which Christian civilization was built.
1: This concludes, Modernist Revolutionaries Resist Recent Setbacks With Waves of Panic and Nonsense. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcasts on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts so by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property, TFP.